Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Feel free to subscribe and tell your friends. Coming up on today's show, tensions escalating between the U.S. and Iran. How does the European Union feel about this? A juror is fighting for rights of other jurors and what they are exposed to. And Michael Jackson passed away 10 years ago. Is he as popular as he always was or even more so? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, in uh, the world of Donald Trump, uh, we all know that crises come fast and furious. Uh, one is appearing, though, to get a little out of hand. European officials are calling for de-escalation amid rising U.S.-Iran tensions. Uh, the German foreign minister warned that maximum pressure without diplomacy increases uh, the risk of war. Uh, this in regard to uh, the nuclear agreement that was put in place with Iran uh, with the previous administration of Barack Obama and the allies. Uh, Donald Trump, of course, uh, uh, canceled this and, and pulled back from it uh, as soon as he got into office. To talk more about all of this, Elliot Tepper is with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University, and with us now, Elliot, thanks as always, much appreciated. Oh, good afternoon, Scott. So when Donald Trump backed away from this, uh, and, you know, it seemed it was at a period when anything that had Barack Obama's name on it, he wanted to get rid of it. Uh, That being said, when he backed away from this, did he see this coming? Where did he anticipate this going? Anticipate may be the uh, question of the day. Was there a strategic as opposed to a tactical plan? Was there a, was there a, a plan in place that had a goal and an end point with the means to get there, that strategy as opposed to the tactic of, well, I'll just pull out because Barack Obama wrote a terrible deal, and I don't like anything he did, as you pointed out. So I don't believe the U.S. has a, an overall strategy toward the Middle East, because after all, this is only one front of a very complex situation involving Syria and you know, Saudi Arabia and Israel and yeah. Turkey and all of that. So uh, the big story remains really Idlib and what's going on there. Nobody's paying any attention to it with, with the uh, bombing of hospitals and schools and so forth. So the consolidation of the Syrian government over its own territory with the help of the uh, Russians and the Iranians and the humanitarian issues all about, around that, all of that goes on while we are focused on the latest tweet from the president. So the answer to your question seems to be, uh, Scott, that no, the U.S. didn't seem to have a plan. There seems to be two strands to it. Uh, the U.S. president says we are going to put so much pressure, maximum pressure, on Iran that they are going to return to the negotiations. Uh, they'll come back to the table because we are causing them a lot of pain. And they'll come back and we will negotiate a better nuclear deal. He seems now to have settled back on that. Uh, but also now and then they say, you know, they're a malign influence. Iran is causing havoc all around the region and sometimes all around the world. So that, too, has to be part of the New Deal, curtail the malign uh, influence. So the second strand is, apparently by Bolton and others, if you squeeze that regime enough, the people will rise up against them and there will be regime change. So the two messages going out. The president says, I don't want regime change. I want to change the behavior. And others around him apparently are saying, actually, what we want is to get rid of the regime. So was the original deal a good deal or a bad deal? Well, that's always, 
I was conflicted on it from the moment it was announced. On the one hand, it was indeed a good deal because the Iranians were clearly on a path to obtaining nuclear weapons and the capacity to deliver them. They have a missile program as well, a development program, and that would be an enormous geopolitical change. That would that would change the equation of the whole Middle East and indeed global geopolitics. On the other hand, it had finite timelines in it that were very concerning. And on the other hand, they did not that deal said nothing at all about the continuing behavior of Iran in the region, including uh, attacking, in a sense, American interests, and sometimes through their proxies, Americans themselves. So on the one hand, it's the most intrusive um, inspection regime that I'm aware of in terms of saying, are you sticking to the deal? And the Iranians allowed a lot of international inspection. On the other hand, it didn't say anything at all about, well, you know, you'll get more money from us. Why don't you use it to uh, develop your country instead of destabilizing the region? And that part was left unattended. So, in other words, a deal to uh, police the nukes, but nothing to police terror. That's very aptly put. The assumption was, I think there were two assumptions. One is, you do what you can do, uh, you get what you can get, and the nuclear issue was so overwhelming that we'll try to separate it. And by the way, once more money comes in and once they start to deal with the outside world, this pariah regime will undergo 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 steady evolution toward more engagement, become a more normal country. But that was a hope rather than, than a plan. Uh, is Iran just fooling us? Uh, is this all just a facade, um, you know, to, to, to play a trump card, no pun intended, mm-hmm. uh, when it's only a matter of time before they get what they want or they, they get to a point of a nuclear capacity where they're comfortable? There was always the concern that they could use within the framework of the existing agreement the time necessary to further develop their missile program and then suddenly reach a breakout, a a quick dash toward becoming a nuclear state, not just nuclear capable, but a nuclear weapon state. That was built into the potential, and that is is a legitimate focus of saying, why don't we revise this? Is the means that the Trump administration doing it, is that effective? That's very much open to question. The the assumption is that this will make the people of uh, Iran rise up against their own government or at least put pressure on them. It's entirely possible, Scott, that everything the U.S. is doing adds strength to the government, to the regime, Hmm. to the uh, theocrats who have imposed themselves on Iran, because then they can say, look, the whole outside world is against us as a people, rally around us, and that may be working. Uh, So a bad deal better than no deal? A deal that you can improve, but you don't have to do this to do it. It's it's somewhat like NAFTA. Do you really have to rip it up and go through the horrible tensions we did, and then those tariffs and Canada's a security threat, in order to get a simple revision of a trade deal? There's lots of ways to get revisions of international agreements without coming to the brink of war, and the brink of war is where we're at. Uh, is this a distraction for Donald Trump, or is this a concern? Uh, what motivates him? One of the interesting factors here, we've discussed some dissension within the actual governing circles of the U.S. on this. 
uh, Bolton and Pompeo on the one side, and and the president has said this: John Bolton is a hawk, and but I'm the decider, yeah. and I have people on the other side. It turns out that's the chairman of the joint. Chief. He likes so, to have that threat. He likes to have that leverage. But he, he said, "I'll be in the middle," mm-hmm. and uh, we're now relying on on the military side of the U.S. apparatus to be the moderating force. But he's got something of a kitchen cabinet, which is common to all presidents. They have their informal advisors. <laughs> this, it's, uh, I don't know. There, there seems to be, within his closest kitchen cabinet, it's Fox News, and there seems to be a split between Tucker Carlson <laughs> and, mm. John, and, and Sean Hannity. Hmm. Uh, Hannity saying, let's go, and uh, Tucker Carlson telling the president, this will cost you your reelection. It'll be a catastrophe. And it's entirely possible that he was listening to that advice in order to countermand his own original decision to go ahead and strike militarily in Iran. Is he aware this is more of a powder keg than the Kim Jong-un buttons in Fire and Fury? Uh, They're both great power kegs. I was extremely worried, again, by the tactics that led to uh, the first summit. Uh, The tactic was Fire and Fury, now come and sit down and you'll be great. And, uh, so is this another self-manufactured crisis so he can come in and save the day? Can he save the day and be the hero in Iran? Well, this is, the, this is apparently his modus operandi. He creates these situations and then comes in as the savior of them. Yeah. But in the case of, of North Korea, we were really on the edge. Uh, that was, they are a nuclear weapon state, and they also have biological and chemical weapons and a huge uh, domestic capacity to... to uh, use their own missiles and so forth to threaten South Korea. So in the case of Iran, Iran is a country of 80 million people, and it has many levers of influence throughout the region. The regime itself was, in, in fact, I think, undergoing stress and strain. So again, coming back to my comment earlier, is what we are seeing in front of us strengthening the regime vis-a-vis its own domestic uh, yeah. constituency hmm. rather than weakening it? Because it's entirely possible that there were forces at work uh, visibly between the moderates, that is Rouhani, and and the people around him, and the hawks and hardliners. But uh, by and large, Iran, the people of Iran have repeatedly attempted to rise up, have repeatedly been put down. The most recent riots not long ago actually occurred in the countryside that were strongholds of the regime saying, why are you spending that money abroad? Why aren't you fixing other problems at home? Uh, how are, uh, obviously the allies are, are, uh, are concerned about all of this. How did they feel about the deal and Donald uh, Trump's reaction since? Well, let's enumerate. Who's an ally today of America? Yeah, good point. <laughs> uh, the... The Secretary of State is currently on a tour of the Middle East, so, in fact, he's also got John Bolton there and, and a fellow named Brian Hook, who's the special envoy for Syria, or for Iran, for both, actually. Uh, they're all there right now, and what they are talking up is to put together a coalition of the states who are concerned about maritime security. So right now the effort is to gather states who are saying, look, this region is just too strategically important. Uh, we all have to work together here against Iran threatening the, the uh, oil, the pathways to get oil out of the Middle East. We all have to band together. So let's create that as our allied coalition. And then Trump immediately tweets out, yes, but, you know, why are we paying all the cost for this? 
we are protecting their oil. They have to pay more, which undercuts the uh, effort mm. by Pompeo, I think, to say what we need now is a new pact on basically a de facto alliance on maritime security. Uh, in regard to oil and the transportation of and, and, and how this has left that all in a precarious situation, g- heading back to the drone attacks, uh, the drone attack uh, and uh, as well the attack on the tankers uh, going to and fro, um, the president said that, that everything was, I, I think he used the word cocked and loaded, uh, I think the term's locked and loaded, and, yeah. and the aircraft were in the air, and then they said, sir, 150 people are going to die, and he called the whole thing off. Would those decisions, you know, and, and, you know, we don't have to debate the, you know, the way the president operates, but aren't those decisions made before those, that aircraft, that equipment even leaves the ground? The information would have been provided to the president prior to his making a decision on a course of action. I think there's universal agreement on that. If he chose to ignore it the first time and pay attention the second time, perhaps because Tucker Carlson told him so, we don't know all the inner circle, all, all, everything that goes on there and what actually affects his decision-making. He is averse he, to foreign entanglements. He's an American firster. He's an isolationist, in effect as Canada has discovered, even the closest of allies and neighbors and friends and partners can be affected by, uh, by America first attitude. So we don't know what is really on his strategic agenda and how he makes decisions. Uh, the, the re-election of the president is first, foremost, and ultimately the concern because every president's worried about being re-elected in this case as we've talked about in the past, his reelection also might have a lot to do with protecting him from legal cases <laughs> and, uh, and the expiry of hmm. some of the statutes of limitation that are facing him. So he has every reason to say, no matter what, I'm going to put all of my chips on my reelection. And how did that factor into this decision not to go to war? Uh, where is he going with this? What is a win here for him, as we usually end all of these discussions, because the president has to come out with a win? Uh, I mean, is there a summit in the works here? I mean, what's, what's happening? How is he going to package this as a win? A few days ago, not long ago, actually, a few, two, two days ago, three day go, days ago, the speculation was this, Scott. Okay, now the Iranians needed a win also. They cannot sit down at the table unless they've got some basis for saying, hey, we're somebody. So the shooting down of the drone, which was, which was cheered at home, and by particularly the Revolutionary Guards who carried it out, yeah. then that would give the possibility of the Iranians coming forward and saying, okay, we've had a win, so we're willing to sit down and talk now. But that was immediately overshadowed. That possibility, that potential opening, was then immediately overshadowed by this new round of sanctions. So I, I don't see an opening uh, between the two. An important meeting is being held on the 28th, just a few days from now, by the EU powers. That is, the signatories to the original uh, Iran nuclear deal are meeting without the U.S., uh, saying, what can we do to preserve the nuclear deal? Now they're perhaps one of the few avenues of potential diplomatic de-escalation, because it includes at that meeting Iran and Russia, and China, and the EU. So what's the significance of that? Well, if everyone is looking for a way out diplomatically, at least that's one possibility. The G20 is coming up. Poor Japan, I'm sorry to put it that way, but Japan didn't have this in mind, 
as what they wanted to be uh, having the centerpiece of Yeah, their, time to drop a new agenda. <laughs> yes, it's, it's derailing that agenda, I'm afraid. Uh, and that was going to be an important set of meetings, plus the, the side meetings, which might include something to do with you know, Xi Jinping and, and Trump, that where the word Canada might possibly have been mentioned in terms of our situation. Right. Will Donald Trump, in the end of this, will he end up getting a new deal with Iran? Will this be like NAFTA 2.0, a new package on the same updated policy? Unknown. The possibility does exist that uh, Iran will, with international cover somehow or another, find a way to open up a negotiation channel. There was one through ostensibly through Oman because... Trump said, I sent a message through Oman to Iran saying, you know, we're about to strike you, get ready. Now, Trump said he never sent the message, and Oman said they never delivered it. So where are the avenues of potential off-ramp from what is building up to be a a military confrontation that nobody uh, on any side seems to want? Uh, Is there, and maybe I'm being too optimistic here, but to me, this seems like the same old Donald Trump play. Take us to the brink of chaos, take us to the brink of whatever you want to call it, war, uh, and then save the day. Yes, um, this has been a, 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 a noted pattern. You set a fire and then get credit for putting it out. Uh, so we, we, Canada tied itself in knots over the new NAFTA, uh, which was a totally unnecessary exercise and then those those pernicious uh, uh, sanctions on, on aluminum and steel. So, yes, this is considered perhaps a, uh, a standard practice, but after a while it wears off. If, if it's known that he's yeah. not really serious, that he's not going to actually want to go to war because it, uh, for all kinds of reasons it goes against his, his instincts and his promises to his base, and it might hurt him electorally, but you can back into wars. And that's the main concern right now. Um, allies, in regard to the old deal, I'm guessing feeling the rest is the same as the rest of the world. Um, nothing great here, but it's the best of a bad situation that we can do. Uh, how does how does this deal change with them still in it and America out? Well, uh, without America, of course, you can't really sustain this for long. They, it's been sustained for a full year. It's been right. over a year now yeah. a bit since Trump pulled out, and meanwhile, everybody else who had signed on uh, kept it and said, look, we're going to work around this because those sanctions, which have been slapped back on, we'll work out a way around that through a barter system or some alternative. But nothing's really come of that, and now Iran has said, we're now selectively going to start uh, going against what we signed on to. We're going to start enriching uranium up to a point where afterwards you could further enrich it to make it nuclear weapon capable. Is Donald Trump listening to the European officials asking for a de-escalation of all of this? Is he concerned about their concerns? It would be uh, good to speculate and, and to assume that America's allies have an avenue of influence in, in the U.S., but there's no evidence of that, Scott. Hmm. This is a go-it-alone guy. He's, he has no, no hesitation to to threaten the existence of NATO, and he cheers on the dissolution of the EU, so uh, with his Brexit and more and more Brexit, so Hmm. this is not a president who is seeking allies. 
Elliot Tepper has been with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. Elliot, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, you're very welcome, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, a juror advocate is fighting to make sure his mental health bill that died in the Senate last week becomes an election issue. Uh, we've talked about this story before. Let's bring in Mark Ferrant, juror fighting for post-trial support, and he is with us now. Mark, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me on. I don't know where to start with this, Mark. Uh, where do you want to start? Do you want to start with a story that got you here or the bill itself? Let's let's start with uh, you uh, volunteering uh, to do your civic duty and become a juror. Well, like a lot of uh, Canadians, I uh, received my jury summons in the mail. I had no idea what uh, I would be getting myself uh, into in terms of uh, jury duty. Um, I was a a juror on a first-degree murder trial, a, a truly graphic one, um, and uh, served well. Um, but after the verdict was delivered, I could not unpack what was uh, going through my mind and my every day. And it, uh, it persisted for a great deal of time. I thought I would be able to get over it, and I, and I didn't. Um, and I learned at the time that uh, in Ontario and most other provinces across the country, um, there was either no support available for a juror uh, post-trial, or it had to be issued by a judge, which happened in my case. And I just thought that was wrong. How are you now? I'm, I'm you know, I'm okay. Uh, you know, I, I live with PTSD now. I'm a changed person. I have good days and, and bad days, you know. Um, uh, I'm not ashamed of the of the illness, and I'm I'm uh, not ashamed of uh, talking about it. Um, you know, but obviously, what made me uh, angry and, and motivated to act was that it happened as a result of my civic duty, and it happened as a result of the lack of support that are available that is available to many Canadians across the country, and um, and that's just wrong. Um, and to uh, to not respect the civic duty that that ordinary Canadians do with no training, no uh, vocational support, it, it it's just it's unconscionable. This it seems like a total no brainer when you think about it because we talk about victims all the time, yet we never talk about the people that have to witness this and process this this trial. So you had no history of anything like this, uh, and it was the the images and the in in whatever you saw during this trial, and we certainly don't need to get into that. Uh, that has what that is what's caused this. It, it is, and you know, jurors, uh, you know, are. Uh, absorbing that material um, with no control in the sense that you're sitting in the jury box, you can't raise your hand to turn it off. You can't say that you've had enough of watching these these awful videos um, or the the you know once again going over the crime scene video. In some cases, you're actually watching the the homicide itself yeah. because of of modern technology. But um, you know, it is a no-brainer. Um, and I was, you know, pleased that um, many uh, MPs uh, federally understood uh, the issue after lobbying efforts, um, studied it in the Justice Committee, produced a report, which then spawned this bill. Um, this bill is a direct result of, of a year-long Justice Committee study. Um, you know, it was passed in the House of Commons unanimously by all parties. Hmm. 
uh, and received uh, support throughout um, passed very swiftly, but it, it was it was not given its day in the Senate at all. It, it wasn't even given a second uh, a second reading. So what, sat what, at the what? bottom of the order sheet. So is that why it died? Just it just ran out of time in the session and it never got there. It wasn't a priority. Why did this die? Well, uh, you know, we knew there were some challenges getting it to the Senate quickly. Um, it's not impossible to do. Uh, Senate passed. Um, passed bills just before they uh, recessed last week uh, that came to them at the last minute. So it is possible. Um, that was a challenge. Um, and, uh, you know, they needed, they wanted time to review it. But there were so many bills ahead of it. And this is a private member's bill. It's not government business. Right. Um, so there was that conflict. I, I, I'm not going to say there weren't politics involved. Yeah. There definitely were. Um and it was just it, it was a real shame that despite, you know, um, lobbying and, and, and phone calls and, and pleas from from myself and many others to move this forward, it, it, it just didn't get its day. So what did what would this bill have done, Mark? The bill was designed to um, to uh, make an amendment to the criminal code in what's called Section 649. And, and that's the jury secrecy rule. So as as of right now, a juror is is legally prohibited from having an open discussion about any of the trial elements, including deliberation with anybody. That stands right now. So so hang on, let me stop. Let me stop you yep. right there. As mm-hmm. someone who's been to counseling, so you you would go in to see a counselor, and you cannot talk about certain things for legal reasons. That's correct. So, so how talk, does that, how can that pot counseling possibly help you if you cannot talk about the case? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's akin to going into, uh, akin to going into your family doctor and not being able to describe your what's wrong with symptoms. You. Yeah, that's the same thing. Just, you know, guess what's wrong with you. And what are the legal reasons behind that? What reasons were you given for that? Well, so unfortunately, you know, the laws were written in a time and place where mental health was not a strong consideration. Right. And, and that's my belief. So this is an antiquated law that was created in the 70s that hasn't kept pace with the modern world. And so, um, like many bills and many pieces of legislation that have been revisited, this one needed to be reviewed and, re- and rewritten. So it, it's, it's designed now so that jurors can't uh, talk about deliberations openly in public with friends and family or the media to both prejudice, possibly uh, an appeal, um, but, yeah. and also keep you know the the secrecy and, and sanctity of the the jury intact. That's our system in Canada, and I. But still couldn't think you come up? One. Couldn't you come up? Yeah, I mean, can't you come up with that agreement between your uh, physician and between the client and the doctor? I mean, it's not well, like. The problem is that, and this happened to me directly, So, and it's happened to others, because of the legalities associated with that, um, the, that section and the potential for criminal, or not criminal, but, but uh, charges, many psychologists and psychiatrists were leery of taking on a juror as a patient yeah. because of the illegality of, sure. of the discussion. Hmm. So. That's what happened to me, and it happened to others. I was given a list of uh, therapists to contact by my family doctor, and I went down that list, and, and all of them said they were either not qualified to talk to me or couldn't 
because yeah. of that provision. So this really isn't about getting more support, more government programs, more preparation, although that would all make sense. This is about being able to even discuss the case with your physician. Exactly. It, 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 I mean, it's, it's a gateway to providing more support, but fundamentally, if you can't have a fair and open discussion about um, any aspects of the trial with uh, a therapist, more therapy is not going to um, help. So we have to eliminate that policy, uh, that um, that piece of legislation to begin with, then to move on to um, providing more support. And that's part of my mandate, too. Um, I'm not stopping with uh, with uh, just changing the bill. law. Yeah, I'm I am still advocating for universal access to counseling support and many other reforms across the country, because it's it's not an even footing. You look over the fence of one province and look at the resources that they they have and you look at the resources in your own province and you say well how come that's the case what are other provinces doing well uh thankfully you know i was able to lobby uh you know the ontario government um directly saskatchewan and bc to introduce um um a form of post-trial um counseling for for jurors so they're offering, you know, limited sessions of, of four to eight sessions. Obviously, I don't think that's enough. But but again, if you can't talk about what you're there to talk about, what sense is the counseling? I mean, you're just basically trying to teach someone how to cope with a problem you can't discuss. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, you know, a, a, a good counselor and good therapist would be able to work, yeah, work on around the emotional it. trauma. Sure. And, and, and um, I think there's, a, there's definitely the, the clinical ability to get you back yeah. uh, and, and cope. But clearly, if you're dealing with, um, you know, traumatic issues, there are also jurors who have talked about the guilt that they feel from justice not being served. Mm. And that's a very real problem. And that mm. happens more often than you know. I have had many jurors from significant cases come to me and say, I can't, I'm, I'm having trouble accepting the emotions the outcome. that I'm feeling. Yeah. Because the, I'm reading in the papers that um, that the jury didn't do its work mm-hmm. in getting a manslaughter conviction. Yeah. And that's a hard one. And and they're saying, you know, it's been 20 years, and I still live with it. And every time it, a, a similar case arises in the media, it all comes back. And that's not right. Should there be counseling before you go in to prepare you for a case like this, as well as out the other end? It's a great question. For me, I, I don't think... Could anything um, have prepared you for that? Could have anybody, hey, you're about to see something real bad, here's some mechanisms to cope, here's well, whatever, but I mean, is there any way, I don't know, how you to prepare someone for that? I think the that? courts, what the courts would say to that and and, uh, and uh, lawyers would say to that is you'd be potentially prejudicing right. the jury yeah. to yeah. Uh, have an emotional opinion right. about the facts that they're going to be seeing. And I think that's, that's part of the job. Hmm. So the burden of the juror is to um, become into court with an open mind, not prejudiced by what they're going to be seeing. But obviously, I think there's there's work that we can do throughout the trial um, 
to promote wellness, to promote going home, you know, taking deep breaths and, and, and working with the individual to make sure that they're not living with it day in and day out. But again, that's the burden of the juror. That's not going to go away, but there's ways for us to work better. Uh, Mark Farron is with us, a juror fighting for post-trial support, advocating for the change uh, in a bill where uh, uh, jurors get a, a chance to even talk about their case with their counselor, which which they can't do right now. Um, let me ask you, Mark, did you ever think of not doing this? Did you ever have, uh, you know, or just think, well, it's my duty, but off we go? Well, I think like a lot of people, um, the disruption that it was going to have um, for me professionally at the time was... A, How long was, was the travel? Uh, the, it was four months. Four months, so that's a big one, wow. Yeah. Um, so I was concerned professionally uh, about uh, how this was going to impact my job. Um, mm-hmm. I was, you know, a, you know, a, a senior um, uh, senior staff at a, at a large uh, corporation with a lot on my plate. Um, I had family responsibilities. I had a pregnant wife. Um, wow. So I was very concerned about how this would impact me. But, you know, um, and I think a lot of Canadians feel that same sense of uh, dread when they get their summons. Um, I've had more and more jurors say to me that the stress in the workplace during jury duty is is um, one of the major factors that has led to ill health in, in, the, in the sense that... Um, you know, their employers um, think that they're having paid time off, that this is a, a, a major disruption to the workplace, hmm. which, to be fair, it is a disruption, but it's also a civic duty that yeah. I think everyone has to respect. Mm-hmm. It's not a vacation. You are not going no. in, away and having fun. Hmm. <laughs> this is a serious, serious undertaking that you're not allowed to talk about. So, the you know, there are cases where you know, and I was one of them. I, I worked through the trial um, and, you know, came into the office at the end of the day and worked until two o'clock in the morning. Um, but I wasn't allowed to discuss what I was seeing in the courtroom. And I wasn't allowed to uh, even, you know, even when I, it looked like I was having a bad day, which I was, I wasn't allowed to talk about it. Uh, when did you know this was starting or realize this was starting to affect you? It, well, it was affecting me during the trial. Yeah. Um, certainly, um, uh, my sleep patterns, my uh, my my want and ability to socialize was changing. But I just chalked it up to stress and responsibility. So I, you know, thought that it would go away um, if I just buckled down and did some work um, and hmm. ignored it, which is. Uh, you know, uh, absolutely the wrong thing to do. So, so what happened when the trial was over? Was it just like, Poosh. well, that's another the great question. You know, it's another, it's another problem. You know, jurors step out of a vacuum and it's, it's really like the rug is pulled out from underneath you. Um, I was, you know, I, I worked in an organization with a lot of checks and balances, a lot of rules and, and, and procedures. And so I was waiting for, you know, this fantastic discharge procedure to, to come. And, and it didn't. I was shocked. I just mm. literally picked up my suitcase after deliberating for a week and went home. And I, I just couldn't believe it. And on the cab ride home, I just sat there and was baffled. Um, and so, 
you know, but you're walking out of the courtroom not able to decompress after that experience. You know, closure is a terrible word, but that seems to be the only one fitting. There just wasn't that um, finality. And as such, I just got sicker and sicker. How has your life changed since all of this? Well, I, I'm, a, I'm a different person coming out of the courtroom uh, now that I was going in. But uh, it's For the better or me... for the worse? Well, it's, it's, on, a, on a personal level, I'm a, I'm a much different person. I, I am, I'm a changed person. I'm not uh, the happy-go-lucky guy that I used to be. I don't socialize the way I used to. I don't find joy in the things that I used to find joy in. I don't, you know, I don't look forward to going on holidays in crowded cities and, and where I used to be gregarious in that fashion. Do you think but that'll I, change? It's it's slowly changing, but it's not something that it's it hasn't happened in in yeah. four years. So you know, I it probably will over time. But I mean, listen, I've talked to jurors who, you know, they're still fearful of going out at night after twenty years of being on a case. Wow. You know, and I I don't like I don't like crowded spaces anymore. I don't like going into something that I uh, into the unknown. Right. I, I am very fearful of it. Uh, um, what does what does advocating for this the way you have and and you know commending you for doing that? But does this help or does this prolong it? Do, is this therapy for you? Is this uh, does it help? Is well, it cathartic? It's cathartic. Yeah, I think it's cathartic. That's a great term. Um, you know, it's I couldn't sit back knowing um, that this has happened to me. And reading about the jurors and talking to the jurors in the Tory Stafford trial, in the Tim Bosma trial. Oh, my. Um, in, and you have uh, talked to jurors from both those? I have. I've, wow. I've And I, I communicate now regularly with a juror from the Paul Bernardo trial, who's been an incredible um, support and friend. Wow. And, and jurors from cases across the country um, that, some of which you haven't heard of, that are just absolutely shattering and um, and what's we're running out of time here mark but yeah. what so what happens to this bill now how do we move forward with this well i listen there's a lot of goodwill still in, amongst mps there's a lot of goodwill across the parties there's a lot of disappointment with the fact that it that it failed um and i have uh, assurances from all sides that that this bill will return um, I'm pressing them for it, and I'm going to keep it alive. But you know, I have a lot more work to do, and I'm I'm very grateful that I have the backing and support from so many uh, so many people, um, and that this issue is live and, and active. Mark, uh, what an incredible journey you've been through, and what a courageous fight you are fighting, man. I, I commend you, and we'll be following this. And uh, again, if you need any more help uh, publicizing it, uh, send us a note. Where is there a website, anything we can go to, or, or people who are suffering like you can go to to find uh, more help? I'm highly active on Twitter. Um, I'm, going, I'm in the process of building a website, but uh, I'm highly active on Twitter. So it's um, at CDN Jury Help. That's where you can find me. All right. Mark, uh, Mark Farron has been with us. Juror fighting for post-trial support, including uh, being able to even talk about the issue with your counselor. Mark, thank you so much for the time again. Congratulations to you. Good luck. Thank you so much for your support. I really enjoyed the conversation. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, uh, lots to chat about. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, Principal Alyssa Freeman PR, everything from uh, politics, provincial, melding with federal, uh, down to selfies. We'll try to cover it all in the next uh, few minutes. Alyssa, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. As always for you, Scott. All right, so let's talk about the situation with uh, Andrew Shear's Conservative Party and Doug Ford's uh, Provincial Conservative Party. Uh, at, you know, at one time, these two were shoulder to shoulder when uh, uh, DOFO won the, the, uh, the election way back when. Um, and, and then, of course, we saw a wave of, of uh, Conservative premiers be elected uh, across the country. It certainly seemed as if it was Team Blue against Team Trudeau, especially on the wake of the Jody Wilson-Raybould and the SNC-Lavalin. I mean, remember talking to many experts saying, is this going to affect the election? And now things have spun around. Um, and and ads from the Liberals are saying, hey, these two, uh, Shears the weakling uh, and, and Doug Ford is, is the bully and he's just going to tell him what to say. So, you know, after stepping back from this, because this has taken advantage of the polls and the boos and the whatever, this is a brilliant strategy on the part of the Liberals because something that was threatening to them just a few months ago, they've now divided and conquered. They've now driven a wedge, or have they, driven a wedge between the ability to all of these people to work together, certainly Doug Ford and Andrew Scheer. Listen, any time that you get to a narrative where you see that it resonates with the public is, you know, gold, or as you used to say in Seinfeld, that's gold, Jerry, gold. Yeah, yeah. And and the reason is it's you know I, almost there has to be some there were some organic incidents that happened that actually amplified the narrative. So for example, you know I first saw these commercials about how uh, the liberals were tying Doug Ford and Andrew Scheer together, and I thought, gee, is this like a great national narrative or is it just a very segmented narrative for people in Ontario where uh, the number of at least the bulk of uh, of, of votes lie for a federal like a federal election. And then the booing started. And you know what? I wrote a post on my LinkedIn, you know, do boos matter? And you and I talked about this last week. Mm-hmm. And I remember you were saying, well, listen, people get booed all the time. And, and I remember replying, and as I articulated in my post, you know, when you get booed at an industry event, and then at the Special Olympics, and then at a two million strong Raptor crowd, you need to worry. So combine this booing and this outward outrage over Doug Ford, timed with this uh, liberal campaign that mm. is juxtaposing Doug Ford and Andrew Scheer, and you are starting now to create momentum. Mm-hmm. And so what might have seemed like a segmented campaign is now gaining traction nationally, because that Raptor rally was broadcast nationally. And any time that there's a drop of bad news or contentious news at any event, the media is going to pick it up. doesn't Mm -hmm. matter what it is. They don't want to necessarily cover the good news stories. They want to cover the contentious. They want clicks. They want eyeballs. So everybody, Scott, from coast to coast, heard the boos and saw it on their television or Mm -hmm. heard it on the radio. Now combine that with the timeliness of this campaign – and now you've got a problem. And whereas Sheer, the Sheer campaign uh, may have not have taken that commercial too seriously and just considered just another you know, liberal salvo trying to take down their guy, 
Now they need to worry, and now they need to come up with a stronger narrative that divests Sheer from this attachment or this organic attachment uh, to self to Doug Ford. So, this is this team divided. Can they use this? Uh, can, can they still be allies? Do they just restate the narrative, or do they let the liberals paint the picture here? No, they need to restate the narrative. And right now, you know, poli- politics makes strange bedfellows, right? So you could be buddies one day and then, you know what, I don't need you the next. And that's just the way it works. Yeah. You know, it's not personal, it's politics. You know, it's not personal, it's business. So We saw know, the same thing with the, prim- with the prime minister when there was various elections throughout the country. Exactly. If it served the purpose for the day and the time yeah. and the moment, then it worked. The next day, it's a whole new story. So with this... This is not going away, and there's been a number of bad news breaks that the Ford government has had to endure. Number one, there was the um, the cabinet shuffle. You know, number two, there was the um, the leaving of or, well, the ousting really of uh, Dean French, the chief of staff. And right. now you're starting to hear all the stories about exactly what was going on in the caucus, and there was much division on how things should be run. And then number three, you combine that with all the booing, yeah. because you know I, I know that the Ford government really wanted to make headway in the first 100 days, so he could say this is what we said we were going to do and now we're going to do it. The Ontario uh, voter can see through a lot of this. And at first, it all sounds good till it all starts to be chipped apart. Mm -hmm. Will this strategy hold out until the election? You know, many, and I remember talking to many poli-sci experts that said that about the Jody Wilson-Raybould Lavalin. This is still a long way away. This will never make it. It won't have legs. Will this imagery continue right through till the election? You know, I think that the strategy is to attach sheer to unsavory characters and or issues, which is not a, a unique strategy when you're in a, you know, leading up and right in the middle of a federal election, Scott. We all know that. But boy, oh boy, it's working right now. So this is just the tactic of that strategy. So if they want to continue attaching sheer to unsavory characters and or issues, you'll see different iterations of that narrative. The Doug Ford one is playing uh, really well right now right. because it's just opportune timing. Will it play really well in September? No. So, you know, you can expect the Liberals will have a different iteration, something harder, even right. harder hitting. Developing, and yeah. more with more of a national perspective that all Canadians can rally behind closer to the election. And, you know, this was in many ways predicted. I remember talking to uh, various poli-sci experts uh, even six, eight months ago, uh, and asking, well, actually, prior to the Jody Wilson-Raybould SNC-Lavalin affair, uh, can the prime minister run the same campaign that he ran the first time, the sunny ways and love and, and everything? And many said he could. And then, of course, the SNC-Lavalin affair and Jody Wilson-Raybould thing happened. And many predicted at that time, in order to change the channel, rather than selling that, they would they predicted that they'll just try to attack the opposition and, and the flaws that they have, whether it's lack of a climate change plan, this that or, or any sort of story of the day that comes up. And that's that's basically what happens. The Sunny Ways is gone. Well, it has to be because Sunny Ways isn't going to sell. And there's much to chip away uh, about Trudeau in the lead up to this campaign, which the Conservatives haven't done yet. You know, nobody's brought up Omar Cotter and that payment. Yeah. Okay. Maybe they're saving that until September. Yeah. Um, you know, nobody's brought up his abysmal record in foreign affairs. 
we all know it, but you have to package these things so that the Canadian public understands it in a really great narrative. And, you know, still not ready um, is, is, you know, I'm hoping it's a placeholder, but it's not something that's going to land or that people care about enough to not vote for uh, for Justin Trudeau. So when you look at how people vote, some some people vote as on the issues, and some people vote as the lesser of two evils. And some people vote, well, is my life uh, any worse or any better than when Trudeau came into government? You know, you can argue, and many people do, especially in my household, you know, that Trudeau's done absolutely nothing for the country. But, you know, is that is that not enough to get elected? Yeah. Or is it that you just don't want a guy like Andrew Scheer? So, uh, and again, we've talked about this before. Nobody knows anything about Andrew Shear, so if anybody wants to paint a picture, feel free, and we'll follow that narrative until he explains himself. So if you are Andrew Shear, what do you do with Doug Ford at this point? You know, I think that you need to distance yourself from him. You do. I mean, you know, to show an allegiance to Doug Ford may make some of the party faithful happy. But, you know, elections are all about convincing wide swaths of people, just not narrow niche targeted uh, groups of people. So I think that you the first thing that he really needs to do is, you know, in order to distance himself from it, is that he has to come out with a stronger story. He has to start painting the right. picture of who he is. And I know that we've seen some of that. And it's been sort of very soft. And this is the street I grew up. And I am every man. You know, look at me. I'm like you. But, you know, honestly, um, I think that we're in a much more volatile uh, political environment right now. I know that Canadians, you know, sometimes we like to play nice even when we're, you know, being mean. However, we still don't know who Andrew Scheer is. And I think that strong visuals, people are attaching Andrew Scheer to all sorts of things and, and you know, digging up pictures of, of him at uh, pro-life rallies. And, you know, sometimes a picture says a thousand words. So who's ever on the communication strategy, and I'm sure that there's lots of people working on it federally for the conservatives and their ad agencies are, you know, coming up with storyboards and narratives that they need to talk more about those issues and explain what Shear stands for. Because trying to paint a story about Andrew Shear is ultimately the most boring thing ever. I mean, I really don't <laughs> care that he grew up on a, a nice street that looked like mine. I really don't. I need to know what he is going to do better and how he's going to do it. Uh, how does Andrew Shear fight the notion that he's just like Doug Ford and he'll cut, cut, cut? He's just like that guy. Again, come up with your narrative. Say what you're yeah. going to say. Sometimes, you know, we all know it's very hard to be, you know, the leader of the opposition because, you know, all you can do is complain about the government, what the government of the day is doing. You know, take those narratives that twist some of those things on its head and show leadership. Like right now, I don't have any sense of leadership from Andrew Scheer. I really don't. And maybe that's a strategy, but right now, let's show leadership. He doesn't exactly have a super charismatic um, uh, personality either. So when I see him on TV and he's, you know, might be mad about People said the same about Stephen Harper. Yeah, well, he he didn't look that mad to me. So, and also the opposition was a lot different, okay? The opposition was was a lot different in Stephen Harper years. And I even heard that some people said, oh, let's bring Stephen Harper back. So I heard I've heard people say, "Let's bring Kathleen Wynne back." Okay, well. Uh, so what does <laughs> what does Doug Ford? 
there you go. What does Doug Ford have to do to turn this ship around? Uh, he got rid of his chief of staff. This story kind of reminds me of the Gerald Butt story. You know, a chief of staff that's sort of a bully kind of has more power than what, what they should. They're not elected officials. They just go around the, the office and do this and do that. And, and many said, you know, that was the issue between Jody Wilson-Raybould and Gerald Butts on the federal level. Uh, so we saw Gerald Butts be jettisoned. We've seen the same thing with the chief of staff uh, for the premier. Does that reset anything? No, you need more action um, than sort of these optics. And, um, you, know, you know, this is not an easy ship to turn around. Like, let's let's be frank about this. And I think that there's, from a communications point of view, I would say, number one, stop blaming, be more respectful and upfront. Voters are often smarter than you think. And, you know, listen, they can read between the lines when they feel that they're being played. That's the first thing. The second thing is that maybe you should cut out all this distraction. I mean, it's a favorite political gambit of any political campaign. So when you have some bad news, you know, oh, no, no, look over there at the good news. In fact, look, we're going to be putting beer and liquor in your convenience store. But voters aren't dumb. I mean, they know that you're making health care cuts. They know that you're making education cuts. You think you're going to, you know, uh, assuage me from by putting beer in my corner? Do you think store? people really take it that way? Uh, yes, that you know, do. you yes, think people are saying I, so. He's more concerned about beer and corner stores than he is about health care. It's like can't governments do it, several things at once? This is just another thing that was on his agenda. It's not. I mean, that it, you know, that's like that, it's like it's like comparing two issues that are very wildly apart. It's not that he's more concerned. It's that they feel that they're he's trying to cover up something yeah. with some good news with what these these cuts are going to do. And he did come in and say, "Listen, we got to look at the budget. We're going to have to make some cuts." They're nowhere near as deep as what Mike Harris did when he was in power in mm-hmm. Ontario many years ago. But by the same token, when you listen, when I look at a news story, Scott, I read comments, I listen to call-ins on shows like yours, and you know, depending on the leaning or the conservative or the conservative or liberal leaning of, of various websites and, and media outlets, you, you get a sense of what people are thinking. And yes, some are more informed than others. But people feel that when they know that there's doom and gloom, that don't try and sugarcoat it with me. Mm. Don't try and sugarcoat it for me. And, you know, Ford has been seen to have, you know, a very thin skin. And, you know, people are now starting to think, A, he has a thin skin. B, he's getting all rattled by being booed. And I keep um, harping on that because i got to tell you, this shuffle and the ousting of Dean French, I mean, I think booing had a lot to do with it. Yeah. Um, you know, he needs a reset. He needs a narrative reset. And I am not sure where the communications are. I think I think they're all very, very centralized and I'm, as in with most governments, but I don't think that they're taking in a lot of consideration or input from some of the other experts that surround him. And I think that they need to start doing that so they have a better litmus test or they need to start doing more testing about what works best better, especially when you are coming out with bad news. You know, Doug Ford wants, like any politician, he wants to be respected, but you need to earn that respect. You just can't go around being the tough guy all the time. All right, let's change, uh, completely change gears here. Michael Jackson passed away 10 years ago today. They say that his estate is generating more revenue now than it has. Uh, Many, this despite many people after the last, uh, you know, documentary about, uh, uh, 
the the child abuse and such aired that uh, people stopped playing him and, and, and such and, and associating with the music. There was some deals that the family lost as a result of this. Uh, how do you explain the popularity after 10 years considering what has happened? How do we look at this? You know, sort of like Elvis. You know, the Elvis estate keeps generating revenue too, right? Yeah, but Elvis wasn't really drawn into this sort of thing. I mean, this, you know, I mean, no. naturally we're no. going to expect that his, his estate's going to continue to generate revenue. I mean, he was a great artist, but how do you balance that with the, fa- with the child uh, molestation accusations? Uh, I think that, you know, fans are always going to be MJ fans. And I think that those who have been affected by the you know, the morality of issues that have been brought up around Michael Jackson, um, we'll look at it a different way. I was just in Vegas, and one of the shows we could have seen was MJ Live. And I thought, you were oh, talking to us from Vegas last time, I understand. That's correct. Why I didn't you tell us that? I told you that. I, you did, you know. I think you told our producer, but he didn't share it with me. And this is further proof that what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, well, even you when you're live there. Poolside. There you go. I'm sorry, I interrupted. So, so how do you sum this up? You know, I, I sum this up by people who are going to be Michael Jackson fans will always be Michael Jackson fans. They're going to download the music. They're going to go see the shows. They're going to buy the book. But people, but listen, I do think that some of these documentaries, uh, the most recent one that was on HBO, I mean, they will affect part of the fan base, Where whether it affects them all the way to their, to their pocketbooks. I think it's too early to tell because the documentary didn't come out that long ago. But I do think from a reputational point of view that it absolutely did take a hit. But honestly, you know, he's not here to defend himself. So it's, it remains to be seen. Alyssa Freeman has been with us, a principal at Alyssa PR, Public Relations. Uh, Alyssa, thank you so much for the time. And next show, we'll uh, delve into those Vegas secrets. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, you were not. supposed to say no, not okay. <laughs> Alyssa, thanks so much. Have a great uh, day. Okay, thanks, guys. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.